exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. In National News Today, President John F. Kennedy's Presidential Library has released the final 45 hours of his private recordings representing the last months of Kennedy's life, according to the BBC. The tapes include discussions on the growing conflict in the Vietnam and plans for the 1964 election. Kennedy recorded many of his White House meetings secretly, keeping their existence away from top aides. The library has declassified and released portions of the tapes since 1993. Also in National News President Obama's State of the Union speeches tonight at 9 p.m. You can stream that event live at whitehouse.gov backslash SOTU, meaning State of the Union. And in Michigan news, a casino being proposed by the city of Lansing could end up costing the state of Michigan $22 million, according to MIRS, a capital news service. Congressman Mike Rogers has come out against the casino, according to MLive.com. Rogers represents the city of Lansing and says he's always in support of economic development, but says the state's existing casinos have not been the windfall many expected them to be. But Lansing Mayor Verge Monero says the casino could provide more than 2,000 jobs for the region. Also in news today, Impact Exposure was nominated as the talk show of the year by the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. So thank you, listeners, for tuning in um, to this show, which airs every Tuesday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Also, today marks my father's birthday, so I just want to give out a shout-out to my dad. Happy birthday, Mr. Ted Fox. All right, so... Today on the show, we'll be talking about human trafficking. We'll be talking about um, the possibility of trying to make marijuana legal in the state of Michigan. We'll also be talking about the show Exonerated, which will play at Passant Theater this weekend. But first... The 2012 presidential campaign is underway, and tomorrow a group of MSU professors will have a panel discussion regarding religion and politics at the International Center. That event will take place at 7 p.m. To give you a sneak peek of the discussion is Mohammed Khalil of the Department of Religious Studies and Frank Ravich of the College of Law. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So to start off, can you introduce yourselves and talk about your expertise as it relates to religion and politics? Well, my name is Muhammad Khalil, professor, assistant professor in religious studies. Um, my work actually is primarily in discussions of religious diversity, uh, but I also, of course, deal with uh, religion and politics just from, you know, in my courses and, uh, and so on. So. Um, professor Frank Ravich, um, I hold a chair in law and religion at the law school, and I've spent the last 10 or 15 years dealing with issues of First Amendment, religious freedom, and there's natural connection between that and politics. So how much do you think religion has played uh, a part in this in the election so far? You know, I, th- I think religion has been increasingly playing a part in um, in in elections. And it, it seems within the primary, particularly within the Republican primary, particularly religion is taking on a direct role and questions that are framed either in terms of religion or in terms of moral values that may coincide with a particular religious um, viewpoint seem to be really front and center, particularly in the South Carolina primaries and as we move through uh, some of the southern primaries. Right. And we're seeing, you know, on the one hand, discussions of, you know, the faith of the candidate. And on the other hand, um, how that candidate would respond to specific religious issues or institutions like Sharia or Sharia law. And do you think that Romney being a Mormon has hurt him at all in these elections? I mean, usually you you see Christian candidates for the most part. So having a Mormon in the, in 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 the race as well, what do you guys think about that? Well, I, I think um, it's it's a very interesting. I mean, the, the the data isn't you know obviously there's no data, so this is just a guess. But I think it certainly does hurt him with um, the evangelical right, um, in which is a big Republican base, but not all. I mean, it's a diverse group, and some probably don't care, others probably do care. Um, but I think it certainly has affected him. I mean, Mormons are, and you know, I mean, they are part of the Christian world in a way. But I think some. 
Christian groups don't view them as Christian. And so um, his being a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, I think, certainly has had an impact. Whether it will ultimately be determinative, I, I doubt it. But I think it certainly could skew things a bit. Sure. There was the, I think, the representative from Georgia who said that she feared uh, the fact that he was a Mormon. Uh, but she said, at least he's not a Muslim. <laughs> Which shows the mentality that affects right. some of these people. Right. Um, you know, why, why is it relevant at all? Right. In, in uh, Professor Khalil, you, you study, um, you know, Muslim religion and faith. And, and so what are, your, what are your thoughts on that comment? Well, um, you know, part of it is from ignorance. Um, well, I shouldn't say part of it. <laughs> it's from ignorance. Um, you know, I, I understand why some would be would have that sentiment, especially if your um, your information about Islam is very limited, or if your exposure to Muslims is very limited. And I find that's really the biggest thing is you know what kind of Muslims have you been exposed to? Have you been exposed to people like Keith Ellison, who is a uh, a representative from Minnesota, or Andre Carson, a representative from Indiana, or are you exposed to what you see on TV? Mm-hmm. So speaking of pe- people being aware of, of, of religion as it relates to politics, and in going back to uh, Mitt Romney, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey last November and found that about half of all voters and 60% of evangelical Republicans know that Romney is a Mormon. I, I find those numbers to be fairly fairly low. Are you guys surprised at all? Um, you know, I think there's two factors. You know, there was surveys done that showed that more than half the people didn't know who the vice president was. So, I mean, part of it may be simply the focus on uh, – they may not be focused on the, – the folks in the poll who don't know may not be focused on anything um, related to the political races. Um, I think an interesting question is why so many people do know um, and why that's relevant Um should it matter that someone is Mormon or Jewish or Muslim or atheist or agnostic? I mean, it seems it obviously does matter. Um, but the question is whether it really should matter. Um, so, you know, I think half the people weren't paying attention and the other half knew. Um, that's my guess. And uh, Professor Khalil, can you talk about the role of Islam and, and Muslims in American politics? Sure. Well, you know, in, in 2000, uh, Muslims in Florida helped to elect George W. Bush. Uh, you know, Muslims in 2000 uh, supported George W. Bush for a number of reasons. And um, by the time we got to 2004, things had changed so dramatically that when there was a, Muslim, a major Muslim conference, uh, this is the, the major Muslim conference, I think it was in Chicago that year, uh, there was a booth for Muslims for Bush, and it became the laughingstock of the conference. It was, it was, just, it was a joke. Um, and that just shows you how much perceptions changed among Muslims when it, came, when it came to the Republican Party. Something really changed. Now, you'll find a lot of Muslims who are sympathetic to Ron Paul because of some of the things that he says. But in general, I think, um, you know, there's, there's, a, uh, there's, a bit, there's been a move toward the Democratic Party uh, since 2000 uh, among American Muslims. And why do you think that is? Well, you know, when 9-11 happened, many Muslims were impressed with George W. Bush's response. You know, he said, Islam is a religion of peace. And he said that at a time when it was important to say that. Um, but I think everything he did, I shouldn't say everything, but much of what he did after that um, was, was seen in a very negative light by many in the Muslim community, whether we're talking about Guantanamo, whether we're talking about, um, you know, Abu Ghraib and Iraq, the Iraq war in general, um, and, and even, you know, all these this sort of the use of secret evidence and torture and all these things. Um, I think, you know, many in the American Muslim community saw that in a very negative light so that by the time we got to 2004, uh, it was clear that Kerry would be the person. Yeah. So – um, can you talk about Islamic law or Sharia law? Right. So this has become a big topic. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, you know, Gingrich talks about this. Santorum talks about this. Uh, you know, this is this is like the topic now, especially as we look at the discussion among Republicans. And, you know, this is an unfortunate discussion, I think, because, um, first of all, the term Sharia is so misunderstood now that what is really a general term is now interpreted in a very narrow way. So for Muslims, Sharia means the law as God would want it. So if you're a believing Muslim, of course you're going to love Sharia. The question is, how do you interpret Sharia? So there are some Muslims who think Saudi law is too conservative, and others who think American law is too liberal, and they all believe in Sharia, because Sharia is just a general term. So when we look at this discussion about Sharia law now, what's going on here is that people have a specific interpretation of Sharia law, and that's the Sharia law of places like Saudi Arabia, uh, which, by the way, is really uh, the exception 
conception when you look at the Muslim world. And so there is this conception of Sharia law, and there's this idea that Muslims are... So on the one hand, there's a misunderstanding of the concept of Sharia, but also there's a misunderstanding of the facts on the ground. So for example, uh, I think it was uh, Gingrich, or was it Santorum? I'm forgetting. I think it was Santorum, actually, who said that the vast majority of Muslims left their countries because of Sharia. This is something that David Ajima has said also here in Michigan. Um, and, it's a, and it's a ridiculous statement. That's right. Statistically, I mean, one of the central things in Sharia law is this concept of fiqh, which is interpretation. And these, and when Santorum or Gingrich has spoken about Sharia, one of the things that I find most shocking is they talk about it as though it's some sort of monolithic, one-size-fits-all legal system. But the central tenet in Sharia is interpretation. Yes. Um, and so it, it's, it's really remarkable how ignorant some of these statements are. And when we're in an election cycle, ignorance is not bliss. I mean, this affects how people interpret things. And these anti-Sharia um, laws that come out in states like Oklahoma, and there was an attempt in Michigan. You know, it, people don't realize that could affect halakha, Jewish law, that could affect Catholic canon law. You know, it, it, it's it, the, these attempts to take Sharia and put it off on the side as though it's this uniquely negative monolithic thing. It, it just shows a complete lack of understanding of Sharia and of how law works generally. I mean, law is a, a frequently about interpretation. And Sharia is no different uh, in that sense. I mean, Obviously, every system has its base, and in Sharia, it's the Quran. But of course, people misunderstand the Quran as well. So, and they misstate what what the Quran says. So, it's 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 really a terrible disservice when people make Ajima and people like that make these statements because they're essentially dumbing down people. They're making them less knowledgeable, and it's it's really unfortunate. And also, when people say, you know, I think Gingrich has said this and others that you know we would we would, we would appoint a Muslim if that Muslim um, disavowed Sharia. Well, the problem with that again, if you're Believing Muslim Sharia like, is it's you know it's like telling a Christian to disavow Jesus, right? Exactly, I mean, exactly. So yeah. I mean, so the problem is that this term has been misinterpreted now, and then now you also have a misreading of the facts on the ground. You know, most Muslims come to this country for opportunity. They don't come because they don't like the specific rules of their country. Um, and, and there are of course exceptional cases, but that's not the majority. And, and it's like asking you would have to literally ask a Muslim to disavow char- charity, Sharia, uh, you know, something central to Sharia or Jewish law, halakha, is charity. So to ask them to disavow Sharia is literally disavowing in a way charity. I mean, and a whole other bunch of concepts that nobody ever talks about as being part of these things. So, um, again, for our listeners, right now I'm talking with um, Muhammad Khalil of the Department of Religious Studies and Frank Ravich of the College of Law. They'll be speaking as part of a panel discussion tomorrow at the uh, International Center. Um, the discussion will be about religion and politics as it relates to the 2012 election. And then, again, that's tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at the International Center in uh, room CIP. I don't know exactly what that means, but CIP 115, the International Center. So, um uh, Professor Khalil, can you talk about um, what you know about Obama's religion? Yeah, well, this is very interesting, right? I mean, you know, there was so much discussion about Obama's religion. And, of course, he's a Christian, of course. Um, but, you know, I will say this. I, I, you know, I never would have imagined that we would have a president with Muslim grandparents. That was a shock to me. Um, but the response, I don't know, Frank, if you want to say something about the response to Obama's religion. <laughs> I, well, I mean, again, it's uh, one of the things that I find so disturbing when these issues become central to politics on both sides. It's not a one side thing, but is is the distortions that come up from partisan people. There was never any argument that uh, any real argument that Obama was Muslim. But I go back to the point, who cares? Right. Um, you know, if. You know, if Lieberman had won, you know, we could have had a Jewish president. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, growing up Jewish, I never expected to see a candidate, let alone, you know, uh, someone in, in, in a, you know, who could have conceivably won and been vice president. But, you know, people in, in this situation, they made it up. I mean, there was no, no factual basis for Obama being Muslim. But again, I think the underlying question is, why it should matter, unless we're talking about this very stereotyped, narrow view of Islam, which has nothing to do with the many of the billion people who are who are Muslim, and so right. I, it's very disturbing to me. Yeah, and I thought it was it was, it was refreshing to see Colin Powell make this point. Yeah, uh, you know, very forcefully, um, and you know, it was actually kind of disappointing to see. You know, I remember there was the famous uh, incident where a woman at a McCain rally said that you know Obama, you know, he's an Arab, he's, he's you know, and uh, she's she's worried, and, and McCain uh, assured. Assured her, he said, "Well, look, you know, he's he's a good family man." 
Um, but he didn't correct. He didn't say anything about the Arab uh, statement, which I thought, you know, would have been nice. I, obviously, I know he, I don't believe McCain is racist or anything like that. But it would have been nice if he had, you know, added something there about, well, you know, so what if he were Arab? Um, that doesn't mean he's a, you know, a bad family man. Right. Well, and the irony there is it, it would, it's, it's a double stupid whammy in the sense that, first of all, he's not Muslim. But second of all, where they were alleging his Islam came from isn't an Arab part of the world That's right. anyway. That's right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's right. It, you know, it's West Africa. That's I mean, right. so, uh, I mean, it, it's it, my concern is how these issues as they come out and as they're portrayed in politics – work to make people more ignorant about central issues. If we are going to talk about religion, let's talk about it in a way that people actually know what they're talking about. And political 20-second sound bites trying to win an election just don't do that very well. Mm-hmm. So, Professor Ravich, you teach law and religion here at MSU. Can you tell me about that, about the classes that you teach and how it relates to maybe the, the 2012 election? Well, in law and religion, um, you know, we go through the, the entire history of the free speech Free speech clause, establishment clause, um, and free exercise. We cover free speech as it relates to religion only. Um, we have a wonderful course also on free speech. But um, I, you know, I cover everything um, from both perspectives when I teach the class, so that, or from a variety of perspectives, so that n- students get to hear the arguments on either side. The interesting thing, and the way I think it relates to the 2012 election, is when people talk about. The law in these uh, situations, particularly in these primaries, I mean, I've heard people just make absolute misstatements about the intent of the framers on these issues, um, about the law as it stands, um, you know, that, you know, God, somebody said, I think it might have been Bachman, God is being expelled from the schools. And the court specifically said, as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in the public schools. The idea is that simply people can't go to the front, use the government's microphone and make everybody pray. But anybody can pray anytime they want. Um, So there's a lot of misperception out there as to what the law says. There's also an issue, I think, that's confronting America today with science and religion. Um, And I think this has become very relevant. When you get only one person willing to acknowledge they believe in evolution, um, in a debate, um, you know, whatever one's view, I mean, I personally obviously believe in, in evolution, but, you know, whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it, um, y- you know, the data on how much evolutionary science has led to medicines and um, cures for things, I mean, one has to suggest that it's a good idea for people to learn it. Um, and yet we have candidates who are saying for re- really pretty much religious reasons that this is a bad thing or we want to um, teach an alternative that really isn't science and maybe would have a place in a philosophy class. Um, and, and so, you know, there are a lot of issues that are relevant in the law, the legality of teaching intelligent design or creationism, for example, or school prayer issues that we see these candidates now talking about um, in the election cycle. And, and so the course actually becomes very relevant. But I will say just as a complete caveat for any of my law students out there who have not taken the course, I don't really get into politics in the course. I don't, I don't really talk about um, the political impacts of these things other than to the extent that, that it might affect Supreme Court appointments or that it might affect uh, how, you know, political dispositions might have affected the parties in a case. But other than that, you know, we keep it to the law and the theory and the philosophy related to the law. So, Professor Ravitch, you also teach law and religion in Japan. Yeah. So what is, what is that like? And, and do Japan's views on law and religion differ from the U.S.? Yeah, the Japanese have a very different view of, of religion and law. And, and it's fascinating to me because the Japanese, I think they kind of have it right, which is, I mean, you know, essentially, you know, I don't think they really care what religion anybody is. I think they care where they stand on the issues. Um, I think also when it comes to quote unquote moral issues that are very, very controversial and tend to be based in religion in the US, the Japanese set of sort of a live and let live almost in a way almost Ron Pauly kind of perspective on some things. On other things due to tradition, bunka, Japanese culture and tradition, um, the view is kind of we're not going to allow this. But it's not really based on religion. It's almost based more on sort of cultural mores. So in some ways, Japanese can be very tough legally on moral issues, um, even more so than some of the religious right would want to be. In other areas, when religion is the central thing, it's, well, 
that's for each individual and we're not going to go there. Um, you know, most Japanese are, you know, Shinto and Buddhist and whatever, or they don't, you know, the average Japanese is agnostic, you know, kind of we believe in something, but it doesn't really matter what you call it, or we're not sure if we believe in something. So also, Professor Ravitch, can you talk about the importance religion plays in left-wing politics? It's It's been a struggle for the left. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the right wing and, and a lot of the, the problems that they've raised in terms of bringing religion in. The left is very frequently uncomfortable talking about religion. Um, certainly in the African-American community, there's a very vibrant religious democratic base. And um, and it is very powerful and very strong. And it, and it does have political influence. And yet democratic candidates sometimes seem uncomfortable comfortable reaching directly to that base. Also, the the Democratic Party, I think, has a very hard time grappling with its own religious um, vision. I mean, there are progressive arguments in religion to fight against global warming and things like that that might be democratic issues. But, you know, Democrats aren't comfortable talking in religious terms. Um, And this is both a good and a bad thing. I mean, in a way, one might say, well, that's good, then don't talk in religious terms. But in a country that's overwhelmingly religious, where the evangelical community actually has been increasingly moving towards the middle, younger evangelicals are concerned about charity for the poor. They're concerned about environmental issues. The Democrats have sort of a carpe diem moment here where they can reach out to young evangelicals. Um, and yet they s- seem uncomfortable in their own religious bridges. Many Democrats are quite religious. But I think because religion is something that is viewed as being very personal, it's not something that a lot of Democrats are comfortable coming out and speaking about. And I think in today's climate, that can have a negative impact on the Democratic Party. It certainly can have a negative impact with moderate religious voters who are, you know, wanting to hear that sort of moral Talk and it can have an impact as well on um, on I think the the sort of the religious le- or the religious the evangelicals who are moving out of the right of the of the political spectrum and Democrats could grab them right now or they could lose them um, but you know these people have very similar commitments to what the Democratic Party stands for so it's an interesting dynamic I think that they're I think that you know religion's gray. For most many people, um, and and gray is hard to get out in in a twenty second soundbite, and the Democrats are very uncomfortable with that. Well, in the studio is Professors Muhammad Khalil and Frank Ravitch. Um, uh, Muhammad Khalil is from the Department of Religious Studies. Frank Ravitch is from the College of Law. They'll be speaking tomorrow night about religion and politics at the International Center. Um, that starts at 7 p.m. in room 115. So you just heard a, a sampling of what you may hear tomorrow night at the International Center. So Professors Khalil and Ravitch, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Human trafficking has become the second biggest biggest and second fastest growing criminal industry in the world behind drug trafficking. To talk about the rise in human trafficking in Michigan is Jane White. She's the director of the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
So the Detroit Free Press ran a story this past weekend, and the headline read, Human trafficking is growing almost as fast as the drug trade. How prevalent is human trafficking in Michigan? Human trafficking is here in Michigan. It is um, evident. Uh, We have lots of cases that have appeared, but it is a very hidden crime. And what do you mean by hidden? Well, it's around us, but we don't see it because of many factors, uh, whether it's labor or sexual exploitation. And when one starts looking at the complexity of human trafficking, we understand that while it appears to be international in scope, which would include the United States, it also is very focused in national kinds of things. That includes Michigan and includes all of us wherever we live. So you mentioned labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Correct. Um, can you talk about, you know, how are they both kind of equal here in Michigan? Do we see more of one than the other? We hear more attention to sexual exploitation. But in actuality, Michigan is also primed for labor exploitation. And, and how does that work, labor exploitation? Labor, um, both must have the elements of force, fraud, and coercion. In other words, I can be abused, but it is with um, um, trafficking has to involve one of those three things, which also includes psychological kinds of force, too. Labor is evident in manufacturing, uh, in agriculture, uh, in construction, in um, landscape kinds of things. Um, And it is where someone would uh, induce people to do something and pay them differently and limit their abilities um, to be free to do what they do, very often using international kinds of labor, such as from Mexico. So we've, we've talked before, and you kind of explained to me that people will, will pay people to come to the U.S. in some cases, let's say for labor, uh, human trafficking, give them all these promises. If you come here, you get this, you get that. And they come here, and they hardly get anything. Would you just think? Would you describe that as being most of the cases of human trafficking? Absolutely, that's that's an excellent example. Whether it's a single person in terms of a domestic case where someone is hired to take care of their children, promise that they're going to make uh, enough money to send money home to their families, um, may have they may have um, all, all kinds of promises. But when they come, they're exploited. They work seven days a week, sixteen, eighteen, twenty hours a day. Are limited in terms terms of their ability to go out of the home, um, are very cruelly. Um, we've had cases where they're fed in the basement, fed scraps from what is left over. From, that's the one kind. The other kind would be a uh, workers where there are a large number. In the United States, for instance, we just had 300 workers that came from the Philippines that were induced to Hawaii and spread all over the United States with the promise that they would be given a fair wage. The fair wage never occurred. They were given wages such as a dollar, a dollar and a half an hour, but they never really got them because they had to pay for their housing, their medical care, uh, their food. And and what happens It is the scheme where they actually are in debt for what they do in terms of work. So it can be one person. It can be many people. So what would you say are some misperceptions of human trafficking? Number one, that it is not in our state, that it is not in my community, that it is not perhaps in my neighborhood. Let me give you one example. Uh, we have about 400,000 children who run away each year. Out of that 400,000 that run away, approximately 150,000 of those youngsters in the United States, and I'm talking about minors now, will be on the street. Within 24 hours of their being on the street, a pimp will come up to them and solicit them for sexual exploitation. And this is what we're talking about, that, 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 that kind of thing occurs. We we can often tell uh, within our towns where prostitution may be. Why do we ignore it and believe that it is of will that someone is involved in that kind of thing? And I'm not talking, I'm talking about minor kinds of things. Um, so number one, the myth that it's not here. 
the myth that um, it's somebody else's business. It's not my business. One, almost 50% of all cases that are identified as human traffic come from the community, whether it is the TV technician who goes into a home and finds there are 20 or 30 people from another nation living together and doesn't question, that's pretty unusual, what's happening here. That tends to be something that somebody is being exploited of. Um, that somebody, um, the second myth, I think, is that people are free to control their own lives. And we have no idea whether it's based on cultural kinds of misconceptions or the fact that somebody could have that much power over your life that they wouldn't tell somebody they're being exploited. Um, and those are two huge ones that we have to uh, fight. So what is the difference between slavery or prostitution and human trafficking? Slavery and human trafficking are the same thing. It's modern-day slavery, what human trafficking is. Um, and, and, the, and the third one that you asked me about, prostitution. Prostitution, yeah. Pro, um, you know, we still have to go over the fact of this force, fraud, and coercion. Why is the person doing this? What was the promise? What is really happening? The, the cases that have been recently involved uh, down in Detroit have uh, two new cases under Michigan law, which is very unusual for us to do because we just have had a new law in Michigan. Um, involved minors, 14, 15, 16 years old, and they were induced into um, the act of prostitution by being promised uh, a good life. Um, it, it's done very slowly if one, one sees how this is accomplished, whether it is the promise of um, jewelry, clothes, uh, a better place. It often is done with a boyfriend situation that there's a promise of love and security and those things don't happen. And you're talking about really serious things happening to kids. And our most um, – can you, can you kind of talk about the demographics of those involved in, in human trafficking, at least in Michigan? Um, the Detroit – a uh, free press article said children account for half of the victims and in our most cases people from the US or are they usually Im- immigrants well i'm i'm not sure where that statistic came from i can tell you that we have between 17,000 and 20,000 people internationally that are brought into the united states on a yearly basis as trafficking okay how many reach Michigan? I can't tell you. We have a very bad track record of how to produce these numbers. I can tell you that are, there are between 27 million and 32 million people in the world who are slaves, who are victims of slavery as such. Um, so the demographics on that, there's one thing that I will never forget, and it is always in my mind, and that is the first case of human trafficking identified in Michigan was in the Upper Peninsula in a farmhouse that had to do with a woman being brought over to be a a bride. And she went through some horrible kinds of things because of the control that he placed upon her. So when we talk about the demographics of trafficking, that's the importance of understanding why we'd like to say, well, it's got to be the big city, certainly got to be Detroit. No, you remember that case in the UP. Mm-hmm. So how can people get involved with, with getting involved with trying to prevent human trafficking, or where do they go if they, can, if they notice a case? First of all, if you notice a case, there is a number that is really important for you to call, and that's the National Hotline Trafficking Line, which is one eight eight three seven three seven eight eight. That's a crucial number, and you don't even have to leave your identification. They bring that information back to the local geographical area. Second one is the federal people that FBI, uh, ICE, which is now called Homeland Security in the state of Michigan, are knowledgeable about it. Hopefully your local police agency is, but that's not always been true, and that's an instance that we really need to work on. Two things are important here on the campus of Michigan State University. There are two groups who are very involved. One is called um, 
uh, MALS, which is the Michigan Abolitionist Legal Society from the law school. And that's a great one that's been going. And then we have a student from Michigan State who is doing the Facebook for the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force, uh, Leah Steinhauser. And so we would hope that um, people might want to see that um, information that Leah is doing on Facebook as such. Um, those are ways to get involved with your church, with your civic group. Um, you have to understand what human trafficking is and how do I best best do that through many sources. Well, in the studio is Jane White. She is the director of the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force, and she was in to talk about human trafficking in Michigan. Jane White, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. We've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. The Exonerated is playing at the Passant Theater this weekend. To talk about the production is Christine Thatcher, director of Lansing Stormfield Theater. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Emily. So first off, can you tell me about the show The Exonerated? Well, The Exonerated was uh, uh, researched uh, and written by uh, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, uh, they traveled the country the summer of 2002. Uh, they got very interested in um, uh, those individuals who are sent to prison, especially facing death row, um, and who are later proven innocent by either DNA evidence or uh, hidden evidence that comes to light or the, the testimony of some other person. Um, and so the... The play follows six uh, people who were sent to prison uh, wrongfully um, and uh, eventually, after years and years, and most of them on death row, um, uh, of incarceration. So it's a really tough look at the, um, the criminal justice system and the death penalty. I see. And are any of these people still alive today that this, this oh, yes. these people are based off of? Yes. In fact, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, we will do is pass the hat at the end of each performance. Um, Blank and uh, Jensen um, have a foundation set up because it's very hard for these people, even though they're pr- proven innocent, um, to get back into the swing of life, especially after 20 or 23 years in prison. And the foundation um, will then send to these six people anything that's collected. Very interesting. So I'm curious, I'm wondering if during the writing process of this play, I know that you're a playwright yourself. That's right. And so thinking about the people who wrote this play, The Exonerated, um, being able to base their work off of real people or even the actors and actresses being able to, you know, maybe connect with those, the real people that they're playing. Do you know any about how the, you know, the play was written, I guess? Can you talk a little about that, well, the connection to the people or maybe even actors and actresses that have been able to possibly connect with those people? The actors uh, and I have not been able to connect with those people. Um, in fact, I think uh, the playwrights hope they are left in peace. Um, uh, but uh, the play itself um, contains um, interviews uh, with the six exonerated, letters, court transcripts, um, case files, 
things that come from the public records. So they gathered all that, and as you go through um, these six stories that are woven together, um, you see them, you know, in their normal lives at first, and then they're uh, involved in some incident where some crime is committed. And so they talk about that. They talk about uh, their interrogations by the police. Uh, they talk. We go through their court trials, and we go uh, through their prison sentence, and finally uh, the exoneration and what life is like for them afterwards. And what do you find most fascinating about these stories? Um, th- I guess the injustice of it that these individuals were um, were um, taken out of their lives, away from their children, some of them. And um, when you come to find out that DNA evidence was ignored or that um, testimony uh, was suppressed, um, and I guess I think what's really fascinating is, it, is um, that these six people still have a really good sense of humor. They're very strong, and they're they're coming out determined to make a difference. So do you think that these stories being published or performed, like we'll see at the Passant Theater this weekend, um, do you think that it has affected the justice system in any way? I don't know. That's a good question. I would certainly hope it uh, has or will. Um, uh I, myself, uh, was called to testify years ago um, for somebody I'd met 20 years earlier. Uh, He was an intern at um, a theater I was working at, um, and he was kind of a wild child. And I noticed that throughout the summer, uh, he calmed down a lot and and, uh, really became quite disciplined over the three months that he was with the theater. 20 years later... Uh, an attorney from Northwestern University came to see me because uh, Dennis uh, was facing death row um, uh, for the murder of a young woman in Florida. And somehow he had reached back in time, and I had been at his uh, one of his teachers. He was looking for the people who he thought might uh, testify on his behalf. Um, and, uh, I don't know why I was chosen, but I gave an interview to this attorney. And then uh, a year later, I heard from him again. He said, can I put you on a train, come down to Florida and testify? And my testimony was, it just seemed like I didn't know how I was helping him. I was just explaining what I just said to you, that he became very disciplined over the course of the summer. Um, but apparently he had enough people there. Um, and what the attorneys found uh, really unjust was there was no body found. And um, he had been seen leaving a bar with this young woman and his brother. And his brother was never charged, but Dennis was. And facing the death penalty when there was no actual body, nobody knew what had happened. Um, and I still don't know to this day if they, they rescued him from death row. I've never heard. But um, so that's why I have kind of a personal investment in in these stories, um, because they can happen to people just like you and me. Did that influence your decision to direct the play, uh, The Exonerated? Uh, the play was given to me originally by um, someone in the ACLU. Uh, they wanted to do uh, – we did a reading of it a couple of years ago for an ACLU fundraiser. And um, – it, it wasn't Dennis's story that necessarily um, uh, made me determined to direct it, but uh, because of him, I, I felt a, a, a real strong um, passion to do the piece. And what was Dennis's sentence? Uh, it was, was he uh, proven innocent? I, I never found out ah. if they, the attorneys got him off. And I don't know, with the Internet today, maybe I could find out. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just haven't. 
So I'm talking with Christine Thatcher. She's the director of Lansing Stormfield Theater. They'll be performing The Exonerated this weekend at Passant Theater. So I'm curious, how often does this happen today that innocent people are, are being sent to death row? Um, there's a whole department at Northwestern um, University that devotes itself. So it happens quite quite a bit. Um, and thank God for DNA evidence. In fact, one of the defendants, um, and I don't know how this happened, but uh, he was accused of murdering a young woman that he had dated a year prior to her murder. His, his fingerprints were found in her apartment. You cannot um, date fingerprints. Um, and she was actually clutching uh, long red hair. And this evidence was suppressed. And this is, was a black man who was accused of the murder. And eventually he was exonerated. Um, but it, it's things like that that you have to say, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to investigate this criminal justice system and, and, and the death penalty really needs looking at. So I know there's a post-show discussion with members of the Lansing Area Innocence Project. Can yes. you talk about that organization and how that contributes uh, to the show? Well, we are under the auspices of um, Cooley Law School's Stages of the Law. Cooley Law School is the only law school in the country that every year um, does a theater festival with law-related shows. And I don't know... Um, how they got uh, the Innocence Project involved. I'll find that out this weekend. But on both nights, um, there will be people uh, at the talk back after the show discussing um, what it is they do. Excellent. So you're the founder of Lansing Stormfield Theater, which started up two years ago, correct? Uh, three years three ago. Three years ago? Mm-hmm. How have things been going so far for the uh, theater? Oh, very, very well. We're, we're, you know, any theater is always cash poor, um, but uh, we're opening um, Romantic Fools the same night that we open um, The Exonerated, the, the 27th of, uh, of January, um, and that's, a, that's a, a comic vaudeville farce about dating and falling in love and um, lust and marriage and um, very, very funny play. So I can't complain. We've got two really interesting projects going right now. So I noticed over the past few years we've been seeing some new theater production companies coming into Lansing, and then we saw, you know, a few years ago, Boar's Head left. Mm-hmm. How would you rate the temperature of Lansing's theater community? Well, I think any vibrant community has a lot of arts. And the the, the theater community, we don't look at each other as competition. The more... Um, the theater, the theaters around this community thrive. The better off we all are. Um, business purse strings are extremely tight right now in this econo- economy, and uh, grants are at an all-time low. A lot of the time, we're in, re- uh, relying on individual donors, and um, so uh, you know. Hopefully, as the economy improves, all that will improve too. There'll be more money for the arts. Yes. Well, in the studio is Christine Thatcher. She is the director of Lansing Stormfield Theater. This weekend, um, her and her crew and team will be performing The Exonerated uh, this weekend at Passant Theater at the Wharton Center. Christine Thatcher, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Emily. I appreciate it. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. The Board of Canvassers has recently approved a a petition that would end a prohibition of marijuana in the state for anyone 21 years or older. To talk about the petition is Jake Fromm of the University of Michigan, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first off, can you tell me about the amendment to end marijuana prohibition in Michigan? Sure. The uh, amendment is a constitutional amendment uh, that 
if on the ballot and voted in by Michigan voters uh, in November, would legalize marijuana for adults over the age of 21 uh, who are not incarcerated. Um, the language of the amendment makes sure to clarify that uh, this would not legalize um, driving under the influence of marijuana or operating uh, heavy machinery or anything that could cause harm while under the influence. So you guys are okay to petition, to petition now. How many uh, signatures do you need in order to get this on the ballot in November? Well, we need about 320,000 signatures uh, by July 9th, um, but we're we're aiming for about half a million to kind of uh, pad our numbers, uh, you know, so some signatures will inevitably be um, uh, disqualified for one reason or another. So we're trying to get half a million by July 9th. And how are you guys going to go about doing that? Well, uh, the Committee for a Safer Michigan uh, is a grassroots organization. Um, we have a website, uh, repealtoday.org, where people can sign up to volunteer. Uh, we're going to be circulating petitions. We have um, over 1,600 volunteers signed up so far around the state, um, from everywhere from southeast Michigan to uh, the UP. So just a grassroots effort to circulate petitions and um, we'll also be um, registering people to vote uh, along with signing the petition. And how feasible do you think this is to actually get this passed? Well, I think it's very feasible. Um, in 2008, Michigan voters, 63% of Michigan voters, uh, voted for medical marijuana uh, in the state. And moreover, given the chance to vote for more lenient laws um, in the state of Michigan, uh, voters have done so. So we really believe that um, presented with the opportunity to legalize marijuana for adults 21 and over, Michigan voters would, would support this. And what do you think would happen if medical marijuana was legalized? How would that kind of change things here in the state of Michigan? Well, uh, just to clarify, it would be marijuana in general, not um, medical marijuana. Yes, is sorry, legal yes. In Michigan. Just marijuana, um, yes. It, yeah, well, that, that actually raises a good point that um, marijuana is marijuana and there's no recreational marijuana or medical marijuana. Um, it has medical purposes. Um, I've heard you know, testimonials from a number of people, uh, really profound testimonials about the effects that marijuana has had for them. Um, but um, this would legalize uh, marijuana in general. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I was just saying, how would, well, how would um, it change Michigan for, to having marijuana legalized? Mm-hmm. Or what, would, well, what, what, what all, changes would be made? Right. Well, first of all, uh, the state of Michigan would stop spending millions of dollars um, enforcing marijuana prohibition. Um, people would uh, stop experiencing raids in their homes, paramilitary raids in their homes um, because they're medical marijuana patients. Um, and we would see a lot more um, innocent people not in jail. Um, I think uh, I think that without prohibition of marijuana in the state of Michigan, you would see a much more a cooperative relationship between uh, police enforcement and citizens, and I think it would decrease a, a really large uh, burden on the state's economy and uh, police uh, law enforcement resources. So I know in 2000, in the summer of 2010, Detroit was trying to get a measure on the ballot to make it legal for residents in the city of Detroit to be able to carry one ounce of marijuana on them. Whatever happened to that proposal? Well, the city's lawyer advised the voting commission that because marijuana um, at the time and as it is today is illegal in the state of Michigan, um, that there would be some there would be significant uh, legal questions uh, that would go unanswered if if the initiative was passed. So, um, based on that, the voting commission decided to take it off the ballot. Right. And, and as you were saying before, it would, I guess, um, the, the biggest argument for Detroit was trying to get marijuana legalized. So it would, since they have, uh, as they said, so many other things to worry about in the city, that it would lower the issues of having to um, worry about, you know, drugs that, you know, marijuana, I guess, and, and police force acting on, on those types of cases. But my final question for you is, is if marijuana was legal in the state of Michigan, how would it be regulated? Well, the constitutional amendment doesn't include language for for regulation, and that would really be up to uh, the voters and the legislature, the legislators, excuse me, in the state of Michigan. But this is the first step 
towards regulating it. Um, that language, the way that would look, um, is totally up to Michigan voters and legislators. All right. Well, on the phone is Jake Fromm. He is um, with the University of Michigan Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and he's on the phone to talk about how the Board of Canvassers recently approved a petition that would end a prohibition of marijuana in the state for anyone age 21 or older. So now Jake and his team are hitting the streets um, to petition to try to get that on the November ballot. So, Jake, thank you so much, so much for calling tonight on Talking on Impact Exposure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. All the gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student, as a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only Now, back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And now for the Michigan Storytelling segment. In the studio is Stephanie Glazier of the RCAH Center for Poetry at MSU and Adriana um, Abundes. Did I get that right? Uh, close, Abundis. Abundis, okay. Mm-hmm. Thank and you. she is one of the designers in the project. We're going to be talking about poetry in motion um, here on the Michigan Storytelling segment. So, Stephanie Glazer, can you start us off and tell us about this Poetry in Motion project? Sure. It's a project that started in New York about 20 years ago um, in the transit system there. And basically what it is uh, are short poem excerpts coupled with graphic design put on public transit. And, and what is that going to look like here in Lansing? So... Um, there are 13 different excerpts that have been coupled with um, design, some from um, College of Communication Arts and Sciences students, um, students of Paula Storer, one of who is with me today. Um, and uh, they're going up on Cato buses on February 1st. And, and what is the purpose of, of this project? So the mission of the center is really to put art um, in in public life in different and unexpected ways. And this is sort of a way to make art digestible and put it in our everyday landscapes. So, Adriana, can you, you're a designer on this project. Um, so you took a poem and created a visual art piece from that. What is that like to take text and create that into visual art? Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely like giving birth to something, you know, that was just dead there in, in writing. But when we read it, uh, the passages that we were randomly given, we definitely felt a sense of emotion just from reading our passages. Mine was, I can say, about, you know, empowering yourself to get out of this the sense of fear through imagination, through relating to your environment. And you just uh, automatically, as a designer, I think, think of visuals, you know, we think of these things for a reason. And then... I think one of the things that we had to emphasize was typography. You know, typography goes unrecognized so many times because of our, you know, inability to want to read sometimes. So we're just, you know, uh, advocating for literacy and appreciation of design. But it was a lot of fun. So where do a lot of these authors of these poems that will be um, shown on these catabuses throughout Lansing, where are these authors from? Um, a couple of them are Michigan State University professors, actually. So um, there are 13 different poets that are being featured. They're from all over the country. Uh, Anita Skeen, the director of our center, is one of the poets being featured. Dan Wachowski, who was an English professor here for many years, is another one. So we have about a minute left here. Uh, Stephanie, would you be willing to read an excerpt from one of the poems that we may be able to see sure. as, as part of the Poetry in Motion um, that will be shown on Catabuses and will be kicking off, I should say, this Thursday there's going to be an event. Can you just mention when and where that event is this Thursday? Um, absolutely. Uh, it's a 
it's actually a private reception um, Thursday morning at 10 a.m., um, which will be hosted on a CADA bus, and we'll be stopping at Everybody Reads and the Michigan Humanities Council, Capital Area District Library, and the Women's Center of Greater Lansing. So that kicks off soon, and then we'll be going on until May. Correct? Yes, right. All right. So without further ado, can you do a reading for us? Sure. This is from a poem called Love by Matthew Dickman. There's a music to it. I can hear it. Johnny Rotten, Biggie Smalls, Johann Sebastian Bach. I don't care what they say. I loved you the way my mouth loves teeth, the way a boy I know would risk it all for a purple dinosaur who, truth be told, loved him. All right, and that is just a little excerpt um, of things that you will see in text and in design form on on Catabuses as part of the Poetry in Motion project um, that that is kicking off uh, soon this month. Is it? It's kicking off Thursday, February first. February first. Sorry, February first will be kicking off. So, Stephanie and Adriana, thank you so much for coming in as part of the Michigan Storytelling segment uh, to talk about Poetry in Motion. Yeah, thanks thank for you. having us. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89 FM.